The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Development, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. What is a city and why does it exist? That may seem like a simple question, but according to Alain Berthaud, the author of Order Without Design, How Markets Shape Cities, the answer is not to merely house people, but rather accommodate labor markets. He goes on to acknowledge people are the most important part, and they are the main attraction. The challenge for city planners, argues Berthaud, is they run into the interdependence between state and markets and the tension that results when allocating resources. When facilitating the needs of markets, Berthaud contends planners are focused on building codes and architecture and not on the needs of the markets. He says planners need to work with urban economists. I invited Alain Berthaud, the author of Order Without Design, How Markets Shape Cities, to join me for a conversation that matters. Mr. Berthaud, welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. You know, when I, when I think of a city, and I, I, I was, of course, compelled to th think more about it because I started to read your book, I started looking at the history of cities. Um, cities were the first independent states, actually. Right. If we take that historical view, then what is the role of a city in the way that it helped to shape civilization and, of course, the marketplace? Well, uh the start of cities usually was based on location, the traditional cities, either a port, you know, like most Greek cities, for instance, or sometime military outpost or sometime a religious center. But then this, they start differentiating. Let's say, for instance, it was a port justly based on exchange. Suddenly, you start having shipbuilding, ship repairs, and then you start having, they created surplus, uh, because, again, if you put a lot of people together with different ideas, they are more inventive and productive than if they are dispersed in a, you know, in, in a rural area. So that created uh, even surplus. And with this surplus, you could, play, you could pay intellectuals, you know, like uh, people, either astrologers, it could be astrologers, but it could be also Greek philosophers or uh, writers of play or theaters and things like that. And a lot of the Greek literature of the world came from cities, again, created by the surplus of the higher productivity of putting a lot of people together, uh, you know, with, the, with different ideas. So when those early cities came together, the idea or a concept of a city planner just simply didn't exist. So was the driving force actually the need to facilitate the exchange of goods to, to accommodate markets? Yes. Uh, when, when a city is very small, and we could assume, for instance, that some Greek cities eventually, well, my, my hometown, Marseille, was created by Greek traders because of uh, magnificent port, uh, you know, natural port, and probably Marseille, when created by by the Greek, were probably maybe one thousand people. So here you don't have to worry too much about planning or anything. People, you know, accommodate with good neighbors' rule. When the city become larger, then then you start, you know, you, you have to divide the city into two parts. One which is private, where all the citizens either will live or will work uh, or produce something. And then 
what would be public? You know, that's the street. You, know, you need, again, the city is, is contact between different people. So you have to facilitate to a maximum uh, the interaction between different people in different parts of the city. As the city becomes larger, it becomes more complex. And that's where you find the, the initial Greek city, uh, Miletus, one example in, in my book, was one of the first one where you defined very clearly in advance the separation between public space and private space. And then in the case of the Greek cities, uh, they consider that certain public amenities were absolutely essential, even in small cities, like a theater. Imagine that uh, Miletus, probably when it was created, uh, you know, planned, was probably around maybe 10,000 people, no more. And they had a, th a municipal theater, which was, and a gymnasium. Those were public space, and an agora, and a tribunal. So those things were selected in advance by the planner at the center of the city because it was vital, again, for exchange, you know, for... So that's where planning came from. But again, it was not zoning. It was only a separation between the space used for communication, the streets, the essential amenities that a city should have, theater, agora, tribunal, and gymnasium, and then the private space. And then the marketplace determined where and the, the growth space. was going to be. That's right, yeah. And those, those cities, of course, had uh, fortification because they had to defend, because they created wealth, right. they had to defend themselves uh, from either the countryside or the sea. And so that, of course, limited a bit the extension of the city. You know, to build the wall was expensive. So in a way, they probably they had the densification, you know, they densify relatively quickly. And expanding was very expensive because you have to destroy or create new walls. And uh, so that certainly created a, a problem of the growth of cities, but, uh, you know, very high densities. As world populations grew and yes. boundaries and borders changed, uh, the dynamic of cities then started to expand and infrastructure had to be created. Yes. So without infrastructure, you can't have markets and you really can't have a livable city. That's right. So, but then there starts to become this tension that I referred to uh, in, in my introduction between, well, what does the city and yes. the planners need versus what does the marketplace need? Right. And, and so has this tension existed pretty much uh, since uh, city-states had, had started to mature? Yes, in a, you know, the first one was, of course, the war to yeah. protect here. But after that, uh, under the Greeks, and my, if I remember well, even in, in the Indus civilization, Mohenjo-Daro, and also in the Chinese city at the time, uh, the question of water supply and sewer was important, but mostly water supply. And uh, so they had to bring water to the cities. And, you know, the wells, the local wells were not enough. And so that required an investment that everybody has to pay. As the city expanded, they had also to, uh, to expand the, the cost of infrastructure. And the question is, who was going to pay so it's, uh, we don't have a record, but probably we had the same <coughs> debate as we have now, that the existing citizens say, why do we have to pay for those newcomers <laughs> to give them water supply? Not realizing that those newcomers eventually 
will create part of the wealth that they were expecting. So it's exactly the same debate we have now. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Development, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. So let's fast forward to this century. Uh, yes. And we now see that the role of being a city planner is formalized. Um, but does that role accommodate the needs of markets the way that you believe that it must? Unfortunately, no. And, uh, you know, I was, I was trained as an architect and city planner at the Ecole des Beaux-Arts in Paris. At the time, my, my you know, final uh, diploma for, you know, my studies to become architect was in fact a city planning, a city plan. But my professor thought that a city was just a big building, so it was not very different from architecture. It was just a little more complex. And so you had, the more you design a city in detail, the more it will be successful. So you have a first phase, which is a design. And then if you have a master plan, uh, during 10 years, you implement your blueprint. And after 10 years, you look if you need to expand the city and you start again a new plan. This is, of course, completely wrong. And even, uh, you know, planners, American planners who have never been at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts, unfortunately, without knowing, follow exactly the same idea, that uh, the more you, you plan in detail a city, the better it will be, and you have a phase of designing it and a phase of implementing it. It's absolutely not true. Why is that wrong? Why is that the wrong approach? It's wrong because cities are made of people who come, technologies change, uh, the economics, you know, the income of the people change, consumer tastes change, you know, people, uh, the, the size of family change. You have, for instance now, much smaller household size than you had 30 years ago, and that requires adjustment. Then you are, that's an internal uh, change in the city, but you have also, you are confronted with external shocks. Well, the last one was a COVID, of course, the, the, but high interest rate, uh, high cost of energy, high rate of interest or low rate of interest, you know, those are shocks, shocks that you have. Uh, aging population, you know, the country of Asia now encountering it, this is very serious, this is something I've never known in my career, but I see increasingly a number of cities which are confronted with aging population, so that's our and then the city has to adjust to that. Well, not just aging, but contracting in size. Yes. In, Especially in, in China. In China and yeah. in Japan. I mean, I, I worked a bit in Japan in a city, Toyama, where, uh, you know, the city was shrinking by 2% a year. And so all the young people were going to Tokyo because there was no future. And the city was shrinking literally. They were they had to demolish houses in the suburb to regroup the population to make it more viable. So where does the role then does a, in, of an economist, an urban economist, come in in helping to deal with those shifts? And so let, let's say we're talking in Japan and we're seeing yes, a contraction. Yes. yes. The, what you need to do is be uh, planning real time. You can't right, have yeah. a 10 year uh, forecast because right, you don't yeah. know what the outcome's going to be. Yes, it has to be, and it has to be monitored constantly to adjust where you, the strategy you have selected works or do not work. 
So after one or two years, you have to monitor it. And if it does work, fine, you continue. If it didn't work, then you have to change strategy. Like a firm, you know, the, you know imagine Apple or Hewlett-Packard or whatever. Uh, they launch a product. If it doesn't work, they launch another product or they modify the product. They will not say, we are waiting 10 years to, uh, to find a new product. Well, yeah, and they have a CFO who's watching the bottom line. That's right, yeah. Where you see the problem, again, with the formation of planners, that planners are not so much interested in what is existing because they are like me, architects or engineers. They are, ex they are interested in inventing something new, you know, a new mousetrap, which would be much better than everything else. So they always dream of a blank slate. There's not such thing as a blank slate. Well, we have, to a certain extent, seen that in China, which is not a free market economy per se, it's a command economy. Yes. Um, but does it, does it work even there if you don't bring in uh, the economics perspective if you're going to build a city? China, the mayors of a city of China have a better understanding of real estate market than many mayors I know in the United States, including New York. Why? Because in the Constitution, they still say that the land belongs to the people. That means there is no, you know, it belongs yeah. to the Minister of Land, basically, that the bureaucrats were like this. But they auction land use right uh, on the free market. Mm -hmm. And now, uh, practically every household in China own their own house. They start developing rental only relatively recently. They have prob China is probably the country which has the least proportion of public housing in the world. Uh, yeah. The United States own more land uh, under direct administration from the federal government than the government of China. Now, uh, now it's changing a bit with uh, Xi Jinping. But the big reform of Deng Xiaoping was to create a labor uh, market, first starting in Shenzhen and then expanding to the rest of the country, and to create a real estate market. Now, it doesn't work quite as our real estate market because there are quite a number of banks which are owned by the government, so their lending is not quite, uh, you know, market, you know, thing. They, they, they mm. could be political uh, interference with it, although you could find that in Western country too. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so the mayor, I think, if I say the mayor understand, well, I, I work with those mayors, and their resources come from selling land use rights. So, and at the same time, so on one side of them, sit the urban planner will say, we should have, uh, townhouses or high-rise or not so high. And on the other side of the mayor uh, is the person who is the financial officer of the city and depends on the sale of the land, land use right, mm. for the resource of the city, which will be used precisely to develop infrastructure. Which is a completely different model than what we have here. That's right. So, so the mayor and to a certain extent the planners very quickly understand that if they say they had the, the fantasy of saying, we are going to develop a large area for single family units, the, 
the, the financial officer will be, are you kidding? We are throwing away uh, $100 million for the next year. So, so that's why I say they understand, they, un they anticipate <laughs> what will be the auction. Of, you know, they have enough experience now. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Developments, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. In North America in particular, we see this trend amongst um, elected officials yes. and the people who work in cities to say, no, 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 our, our overriding responsibility is to the social yes. the structure right, of the yeah. city, not yeah. to accommodate yes. a commerce. But what they do then is they create that tension where commerce goes, well, if I can't function, you can't get the money. That's right. Yes. And, we're, and But because people are elected based on the idea, well, I'm looking after the people, not the business. Right, yes. They, they tend to not invest in infrastructure the way that they need to. And I'm going to be right up front here. I'm going to say I think Vancouver has fallen into that trap. Yes. We are not uh, investing in the infrastructure that accommodates markets, and as a result, right, yes. the city is under remarkable strain. Yes. Maybe, you know, I, I will say something which maybe is very paradoxical. Uh, Vancouver is a very beautiful city. It has a unique site, you know, with mountain, sea, mild climate. Life is so good in Vancouver that the people who have been there a long time don't want any change at all. And no city can survive without change, without adjusting again to these internal and external shocks. So how do you turn that lethargy or resistance to change yes. around? Uh, something like a talk like you, you know, the press, I think, the media has a big role to play, uh, not to do the easy question, but to try to dig into, uh, into the, the issues, including being a little wonky sometimes, you know, being a numeric, you know. Uh, and I think that they could have a big influence on people if people understand what the issues are. Because in the long run, if we don't adjust to change, this city that we love very much, and I'm sure people who live in Vancouver, for good reason, love it a lot, those cities could go the way of Detroit. And especially then here, I, I think you have a good administration in general, in general, so you will not go the way of Detroit for the same reason. But uh, I could see an aging population, you know, if you're, you do not solve the affordability problem by mishandling the use of land through regulation to poor regulations, uh, you are eliminating the young from the city. Young graduates uh, would love to be in, in Vancouver. In Vancouver, they will be probably more productive than if they go in a small town in Canada. But they, if they cannot afford housing here, they may be tempted to get a standard job in a smaller town where they will be much less productive. Uh, and the population of Vancouver will age. So it will take a long time. It will not be immediate because, you know, old people can still be productive, you know, I like to think. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, missing a, one generation will uh, be a very dear price to pay after maybe 20 years. I have just come across two stories in the last two weeks of people, one from Barcelona and the other from Brussels. Yes. Who immigrated here. Yes. They're going back. 
going said, back to Barcelona and, 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 and to Brussels. And to Brussels. Ah, They're saying, this is unlivable. We can't afford it. Ah, and, and they have full-time jobs yes. with children, and they're losing money on a monthly basis. Yes, so because of housing costs. Because of housing costs. Yes, right, yeah. And, it, and those housing costs have been driven up by yeah. so many different land uh, use policies. And yeah. You know, uh, Vancouver, again, is a wonderful city because of the site, which is, again, unique. But it means to, like all the cities like that, you know, I will compare it to Hong Kong, Buenos Aires, uh, sorry, uh, Rio de Janeiro, you know, which has spectacular thing, or, uh, you know, or even Sydney to a certain extent. And those cities have, in fact, a shortage of land because if you take a, a, rad, you know, a circle, a radius of, say, 25 kilometers around the city center, 60% uh, is either mountain of water. Mm -hmm. That means that if you compare the land availability in Vancouver to Houston or Dallas or Atlanta, you have 60% less land. So you have, you have a shortage of land in a way. I, I'm not saying it's necessarily liability because, again, uh, the scenery compensates, you know, makes the city attractive and things like that. But you have then to manage land much more carefully because it's a, it's a very sparse resource. A bit like a city in the desert will have to, to use water, you know, to be very, very careful about the way they use water. You know, where if you are in Vancouver where you have plenty of water, you can wash your car every day if you want. It doesn't matter very much. If you are living in Riyadh, uh, it's not a good idea to wash your car every day because it will cost a lot, a lot of money and eventually you will run out of water. And I think that uh, Vancouver now, because of uh, kind of insouciance, I will say, about the use of land, has been wasting land. You know, when I see the, the, the density gradient, for instance, the density around, you know, I think they, they have been wasting land by, um, you know, non-necessary uh, non regulation. So what role then can an urban economist play in a place like Vancouver in working with planners to help us to address some of these very, very real issues yes. that are just on the horizon? We're starting to see yes, them emerge. Yes, right, yeah, yes. Now's the time to act. Now's the time it to act. It can't be a 10-year plan. That's right, yeah, yeah, if you don't want to lose a generation. Yeah. So what role does the economist play? Uh, you know, a, a bit, I, I'm not so sure in Vancouver, of course, because... I'm not uh, so sure uh, it can work uh, here. <laughs> but, uh, but say, in general, economists work for think tank or academics. And they are, I think, pretty good at analyzing things, but after it has taken place. So, for instance, you read a lot of papers about the inefficiency of uh, land use in Atlanta, in Vancouver, in different things. But those people write for their peers. They don't, they don't really participate in the, uh, you know, you have to participate in, uh, in the city administration at the time you establish those regulations. If you criticize them or analyze them after they have been voted by the council, it's too late. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not saying that they could not modify them. You have to participate, you know, a bit like I was talking about the Chinese, you have the mayor, you have the financial analyst, and you have the planner sitting all around the table. Mm -hmm. So you would have in the cities to have economists 
And if possible, urban planners will understand, without being economists, but understand economics. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Development, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. You talk about the, the most expensive land being in the city, uh, city center. Yes. And that doesn't uh, drive people away. It, it, it attracts them. It attracts them. And yes. it is what drives density. That's right, yeah, yeah. It's because many people want to be as close as the center as possible. Because so, they want to be in those labor markets. Were, so, yeah. yes, right. And, and sometimes, you know, office building outbid people or people outbid office building, depending on the density they can accept. You see, so that, so again, uh, markets also represent culture. Uh, sometimes, you know, in some culture, people, for instance, in Paris, rich people, will be ready to make a trade-off to live in an apartment of 70 square meters, very rich people, to be in the center of Paris, close to the amenities of Paris. Mm -hmm. For them to be able to walk to, say, 100 different quality restaurants from their house will be worth sacrificing another 100 square meter floor space. An American, especially from Texas, will never make this trade-off. Uh, they will consider that to have a very large house with a, an exercise room, a bar, uh, uh, you, know, a, you know, a large bedroom, a bathroom for every, uh, you know, will be worse living far away from the city. It represents culture. Mm -hmm. Maybe also a dispersion of amenities, you know, in the Texan cities, you have also some pretty good amenities, but they are dispersed. They are not in the center. So each city then, therefore, is an accurate reflection of its culture. Its culture, yes. And its markets. Its market and its history. So you know, there is a long shadow of history of right. every, every. And so we have to accept that that is such. Yes. And make that part of our decision That's process right, yeah. moving forward. We have to understand why it is like that. We cannot assume that a city is dysfunctional because people are stupid or something like that. There is always a reason for it. Uh, maybe it's a superstition, uh, but we have to find the reason. And if the market appears not to work well, for instance, I see in North American city always recommendation that uh, there are not enough food shops uh, in poor neighborhoods. We have to find why it is so. Uh, you know, it could be that the poor are not let's say, do not have the mean to, you know, the food, especially good food, say fruit and vegetable are too expensive for the poor. They'd rather have something which is more filling and cheaper. It could be that there's a crime level and, you know, uh, say entrepreneur hesitate to go there because the risk, maybe they cannot get insurance or something like that could be, it could be something like racism, it could mm -hmm. be, but we have to find the reason. And if we hope to make a change, if we hope to make a change and then find a market solution to it, you, we cannot have uh, a, a food, let's say food store, which is run by the municipality. This doesn't work very no. well. Imagine we all complain that the market do not deliver uh, enough affordable housing. On the other hand, if you look at all the regulations, you find that there is a minimum plot size, minimum apartment size, 
that all regulation oblige you to use more land than you will want because if you put a maximum floor ratio, you know, the, the proportion, it means that if we didn't have this floor ratio, probably you will use less land for the same amount of floor space. So we force you to use more land. Mm -hmm. So all those regulations force you to use more land. It's a bit like if you had people who were malnourished, that you put a regulation saying everybody will be obliged to have a meal with 1,200 calories. If not, it will be outside the city. You know, that's not the way to solve a famine. Mm -hmm. If you want to solve a famine, you bring more food to the city. You don't put a regulation saying the minimum amount of food you have to have could, should have uh, 1,000 calories. Well, a, a city, as we discussed, is a reflection of the people who live there, the right, markets yeah. that they serve, and the planners and elected uh, officials who uh, try to steer it. But as you pointed out, 10-year plans aren't going to get you moving forward in no. the most positive of manners. Yes. Yeah. No. I mean, in, the, in my book, I, I give the example of the master plan of Hanoi. Now, the master plan of Hanoi was not designed by Vietnamese. In the good old tradition, they ask very competent consultant to prepare the plan. <coughs> the plan was prepared by architects and engineers, urban planners. And they decided that 70% of the land around Hanoi should remain agricultural. And so they designed very, and that Hanoi should leapfrog uh, across this agricultural land and then develop on little hills uh, west of Hanoi. Mm. And the idea was you will have this agricultural belt. They even decided that area where you will have uh, agro industries, that mean, you know, making, uh, uh, you know, pasta or something. Yeah, you know, processing noodles, and so on. Processing yeah. agriculture. Yeah. And they decided that the people who live there will remain working in paddies. Now, cities are labor market. If you are a farmer 15 kilometers from Hanoi, uh, the income is such that you probably can afford a motorcycle. Within a, with a motorcycle, you can go to Hanoi, work in construction industry, probably become relatively you know, fast, an electrician or a plumber or somebody, you know, uh, pouring concrete, you will get a salary which is three or four times what you will get planting rice. On top of it, you will have migrants coming to Hanoi who will come to your farm and, uh, you know, if you can build five or ten little houses there with a well in the middle, you can rent those houses to those workers and you will make much more money than planting rice. But the city was designed to be able to accommodate that kind of uh, innovative and entrepreneurial thinking. Yes, right. Yeah. And yeah. the master plan negates that. You know, they have the naive idea, it, it, it sounds like uh, uh, magic, that if they color the part of the city green, the people who live there will say, oh, the master plan say we should be farmers and they will be happily farmed while the other are making quite a lot of money being uh, you know, plumber or electrician <laughs> there. So right. that's a complete naivete, again, the uh, complete misunderstanding of what a city is all about. Right. And the magic of design, you know, plans, 
like if you know the the uh, yeah it's magic you know that you color green and then people then remain remain farmers because they live in the green area. I find it fascinating that as we look at cities. Uh, it's such a dynamic development yes. that we need to stay attuned to what's happening in the minute. We need to really be responding real right. time. Yes, yes, uh, yes. yes right. If we hope to uh, maintain the health of yes, and right, yes. ensure the future success of a city. Yes, yes. Yeah. And the advantage we have compared to when I started my career is that we have now technology give us means to understand the city much better than we had before. Right. You know, before, we have data. Yeah, a lot of data are extracted in real time. Yeah. Before, for instance, when we wanted to know about commuting, we will have to commission a survey, we will have people on the road with a counter like that who will count vehicles, or we will put a little uh, pneumatic uh, line on the road, right. which uh, you know, will tell us so many. And then from there, we will extrapolate what the traffic was, where they were coming from. It was very costly, not very accurate, but it gives us a vague idea about commuting. Now we have this in every day, every hour, every minute, we can know what's happening. The question is to put together the people who have the skill to extract the data, because you need, you know, it's not self-evident, you need a very a lot of skills, and the planners will know how to use the data. Yes. And, well, but that's, that's nice. but it's an exciting future. It is an exciting future. Thank you very much for coming in Thank and you. sharing just a few of your insights. And, yeah. I, and I realize that we wander all over the place, but I really appreciate it and I'm fascinated by, by where we're at and understanding how to yes. uh, plan and manage cities. Thank you for listening and please visit conversationsthatmatter.ca and become a subscriber. And thank you to Audlin Brown, BD Developments and Stem Cell Technologies for their support.